one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 426 for the week of Monday, August 20th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. Welcome, welcome and uh, happy to be here today. I'm happy to be here as well. And Mark Ratterman will return, hopefully with us next week as he continues to settle down and finish his maintenance in the hangar after his times at the FAA for training. Okay, so while he stays in the hangar getting ready, we're going to leave Earth and go to what you could figure would probably be our main story, and that is the Mars Science Laboratory, or Curiosity, hanging out at Gale Crater on Mars. As you recall, a couple of weeks ago, that successfully landed on the surface of Mars, and since then has been beaming back not only black and white images, but full-color panoramas. We talked about how last week it was getting the upgrade to science on its onboard computers, and that was completed, and they already began testing one of their instruments, that being the much-talked-about laser, and fired it at its first rock. Right, Gene? Yeah, uh, ChemCam, which is the actual instrument uh, that has the, uh, the infamous laser on board, uh, they selected a, a rock, a kind of boring rock of basalt. They kind of figured they knew uh, what kind of readings they were going to get and so on. This was, again, a control to make sure that, uh, you know, the uh, ChemCam was up to speed. This weekend, I believe it was Sunday, uh, the team tested it on a rock that they designated uh, N165 initially, but I believe uh, later on they uh, changed the name to Coronation, and I guess uh, uh, Coronation got, uh, well, coronated. ChemCam apparently works just fine. Uh, They've gotten the results that they were looking for, and uh, uh, so that's that's extraordinarily good news there. It looks like also, too, that most of the science instruments that they've been testing on Curiosity— have indeed been, you know, have indeed fired up and and are functioning, and it looks like all the software is talking to the instruments very well. So uh, next steps really are to figure out where we're going to take our first traverse, and uh, oddly enough, it's it's in a reverse direction from where we want to go initially. Initially, the idea is to go up the mountain there there nearby, but that that's not going to going to happen just yet. So our little visit to Mount Sharp will be just slightly delayed. They're going up to a, an area called Glenig, which is not exactly all that far away from the rover, um, just because it's, uh, it's, it's geologically interesting at this, at this point. I also think, too, 
Um, there are two spots not too far away from the rover that they want to check out. These were sort of, you know, dust that was cleared away from the blast that uh, Skycrane was making on, on the ground. And it uncovered, it looked like some bedrock. So they want to go ahead and take a look at that area. Uh, the, the interesting thing, though, Sawyer, that I, I heard on, on the press conference, and a lot of people from the press really, really wanted to know if Curiosity was going to stop by any of the, uh, shall we say, the, the crime scene, if you will, that was, it was being called, the, you know, if they were going to go ahead and inspect the heat shield or uh, even the remains of Sky Crane or anything like that. And uh, they're not really going to do that uh, because, quite frankly, they're not in you know, anything, any area that's really, really geologically interesting. Uh, there's a possibility that it might see en route to uh, one of the destinations that uh, they might be able to go ahead and see the heat shield and mask and, and the mask cam is going to be pointed in that general direction. So they're going to go ahead and try to see if they can see it off in the distance, but they're not going to go ahead and venture out to it. Uh, Curiosity is a is a geologist and a chemist, and it wants to to get to work. and so, And the scientists that are controlling the vehicle, they want to go ahead and do some science, and not really go ahead and take a look at uh, well relics, for lack of a better better term. But it just seemed to me that they were kind of sort of fixated on trying to see any any of the the debris that uh, Curiosity kind of sort of left behind during during uh, during landing. Right. That would kind of be like if you were driving, let's say, to the Grand Canyon, and you have a chance to explore deep into the Grand Canyon, and you choose to go back and check to make sure that the top on your convertible was up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, a good analogy. I like that. It's the same same difference. I mean, you know, it, it's it's kind of detracting from things, and and I don't that that was just my opinion. I mean, let, let's go off and do the science. Let the you know let the relics lie here. The one thing, sorry, and I don't know if you caught this or not, but over the weekend there was a yet another parody Twitter account for for the for the basalt rock uh, called N one sixty five Mars. I caught it, and I'm a follower. Yeah, I am too. Actually, I, I just I, this this was a scream. Um, if anybody is a Twitter follower and they're listening to us, um, go ahead and try to see if you can follow follow this thing again. The account is at n one sixty five Mars, uh, and it it was an absolute scream during the uh, um, during the, the the test over the weekend. Uh, I mean, even, even three hours ago from our recording time here on the 20th of August, to quote one of them, quote, quiet night at Gale Crater. The robot looks less fearsome in the dark and when it's not shooting me with lasers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another interesting quote I should add from N165 Mars was also from today, and this will be a great lead into our next story. The tweet was, wait. The next thing you're sending over is a giant robot with a five-meter rock drill. Can someone come rescue me first? <laughs> and what that's talking about is a NASA announcement that was made today, 20th of August, 2012, that in 2016, as much as we were talking about how we have nothing planned for a Mars landing mission in 2016, we were wrong. Yeah, what, this looks like it's going to be one of the Discovery class missions, uh, essentially... I, I don't want to say the you know the the El Cheapo type mission to Mars, but uh, that's the best way I can I can I can come up with. Uh, 
it was there was a press conference today uh, where an announcement was made that the new lander uh, called Insight uh, it will have on board uh, two devices. One a uh, a drill, as poor N one sixty five was sort of you know being very very scared about. Uh, the drill is uh, made by a German company, and its purpose will be to go ahead and drill some 16 feet into the Martian crust and take the temperature down there and see what uh, the temperature is below the, uh, the, the surface level. And uh, a French-built seismometer is going to go ahead and obviously start testing for, for Mars quakes. The, um, the lander, I think, is going to be a redress. And, and if I'm reading some of the articles I've seen before, uh, before we went to, uh, to air here, is going to be sort of a redress of the Mars Phoenix lander. Not a bad idea. Phoenix works, and uh, it got us. It got us to where we needed to be. So there's a good chance that this mission too will have the same success that Phoenix had, and we'll be able to go ahead and get these two instrument instruments to where they they uh, they want to go. So again, we're, it looks like we are going to hit the uh the 2016 window again this is this is going to be a very quick you know i don't quick mission out there but it will um it will score a uh a 2016 uh, visit to the to the red planet so that's that's good news yeah especially since in fact uh on the date of the curiosity landing we were discussing this in one of your google hangouts about the future of Mars, of, you know, what's coming up, because we originally were going to team up with the European Space Agency for ExoMars in 2016, but we decided not to partake in that, and Russia ended up jumping on the bandwagon instead. So at least we have something. So one question that I've had is we keep talking about these Discovery-class missions. What makes a Discovery-class mission different from, say, a Curiosity mission? Well, the discover—it's the the easy answer is money. Uh, a discovery class mission probably runs in the area of about eight hundred million dollars. Now, to everybody listening out there, that seems like, oh my God, that's expensive. Well, yeah, it, I guess it is. But if you take a look at how much Curiosity cost, which was in the range of about two point five billion dollars, uh, eight hundred million dollars isn't all that isn't all that bad. Um, also, uh, this, I, I almost don't want to revisit better, better, faster, cheaper, but, um, a discovery class mission is, uh, is, is fast. It's quick. It can be done, you know, on a, on a shoestring and you can still get some good science out of it. So, you know, I, I guess that's really it. It does have limited capability. But uh, I mean, it's not going to be the same, you know, the, the same uh, caliber that you're going to see of a of a Curiosity class lander or something like that, or or anything like that. You're not going to have a lot of bells and whistles on on here, but it will it will do exactly what you want it to do. I guess really the best example, and and I'm going to really really dig into the bottom of my brain here if everybody kind of remembers and and for for those of you old enough to remember the old buick special since we're talking about cars the buick special was was you know basically four wheels and a steering wheel but it got you there uh i guess that's the best way i can describe the uh the discovery missions no frills but it it'll do the work it'll do the job and it'll get you there 
Okay, well, I'm glad we were able to clear that up because, you know, they talk about Discovery Class missions, and it's a very broad topic, you know? It sounds like it's such a good thing. Oh, Discovery, that's always a good thing, and it's just shortage of money. The other thing, too, uh, just real quick, one of the one of the Discovery mission choices that uh, this particular mission beat out was one to uh, to Titan, where I think we were talking about possibly putting a small uh, submersible over there, and that would have been too cool. I hope that's still on NASA's radar. Um, it would be a darn shame to lose that opportunity because uh, I still say if we were able to do that and put some sort of submersible there, who knows what we're going to find. Hopefully there'll be something looking back at the submersible and really, really rewrite things. Indeed. But one thing that we talk about here is we're talking about all these future Mars missions and curiosity, but there's one mission that's getting left in the dust, so to speak. <laughs> but literal and figurative, we've got another rover that's kind of got a little bit of priority on Mars in terms of dominance and length of time on the surface, right? Oh, yeah. You know, there was a I'm looking at an interesting article here from the Los Angeles Times dated. Oh, let's see. Do, 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 I think it was today, actually, August 20th. Uh, and it is featuring. Well, I guess the real deal that the uh, author here was trying to, to, to come up with. Is there any rivalry going on between, you know, the, the Curiosity team that's got this brand spanking new rover with a lot of new toys, a lot of new bells and whistles? It's basically the SUV on Mars right now, as opposed to, well, scrappy little opportunity that's been on Mars since, what, sorry, about 2003, if I'm not mistaken? It launched in 2003, landed, I believe it was January 2004. Okay, so it's been on the surface since about 2004. And uh, it has been chugging away and doing some great science. The article talked to a few of the, the uh, rover drivers that have driven Opportunity, um, and they wanted to find out if uh, anything was going to be learned from the Opportunity team that can be moved over to Curiosity. And uh, I believe they talked with uh, Ashley Stroop, who is also one of the uh, Mars rover drivers. We've had the honor here of talking with uh, Mr. Scott Maxwell, who I believe now is on the Curiosity team. But um, she had highlighted that uh, there were some lessons that they learned uh, with Opportunity. Like they they've, they they uh, brought up in the article here, quote. When Opportunity got stuck in the thick Martian sand, uh, the rover kept turning its wheels, thinking. It was driving steadily along. Uh, today, though, uh, the drivers make the ro make the rover take regular snapshots on its journey, so that uh, they know, you know, how it's uh, making its progress. And I guess that through doing that little, you know, snapshot mosaic, the nav cam on Curiosity was kind of sort of born, so it could actually take a look around and see what's, you know, what it's getting itself into. So, you know, there, there's a good good lesson there. But, I mean, Grant, uh, Opportunity has got some challenges, uh, as the uh, article indicates, you know, uh, presented by, quote, it's, it's ailing an arthritic body. When its shoulder joint gave out, the drivers figured out a way to pop, properly position Opportunity's arm uh, using its wheels. So, you know, again, it, it, it kind of caused you to... to think ahead and so on and i'm sure as as curiosity ages and moves on 
opportunity would have taught it uh, some lessons here and taught the team some lessons that they could carry over and uh, and poured over to uh, to the curiosity effort. I'm sure also too that uh, Spirit, even though that that she is no longer functioning, um, is also going to be in the same same boat, if you will. Her legacy will be to go ahead and take care of uh, curiosity and 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 all the lessons learned from there. Is there going to be any uh, rivalry going on between the two teams? Who knows? We'll just have to see. But uh, so far. Uh, it looks like it's more of a, you know, it's more of a symbiotic relationship, at least from what I'm reading in, in this uh, in this particular article here. So it'd be, it, it would be kind of fun to see how the two teams kind of interact and, and help each other out. Yes, indeed. And the benefit to having two working roving vehicles on the surface of Mars, more science. Indeed. Indeed. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Alrighty then, let's continue along with more of For Science, except this one isn't necessarily For Science on Another Planet. This is For Science of Flight. There is a test vehicle that's being developed by the Air Force. It's called the X-51A, also nicknamed the Wave Rider. I love that nickname. It sounds so cool. (laughs) The vehicle is an Air Force vehicle. Its goal is to try and fly at Mach 6. It was launched under a B-52 wing with a scramjet on the back to try and get it up to Mach 6. We're not talking supersonic here. We're talking hypersonic speeds. We're talking New York to L.A. in one hour. Think about that just for a moment. Wow. (laughs) If it were to be used for passengers, that would be amazing. But the success rate on it, not great to begin with. Now worse. On August 15th, 2012, on one of its planned test flights, the test flight was going according to plan. It was launched from underneath the wing of the B-52. And that lasted perfectly for about 14 seconds or so. At that point, there was a problem with one of the fins And that faulty fin caused the vehicle to lose control, and the vehicle was destroyed. The previous test of it was in May of 2010. That one, it flew at about Mach 5, nearly 3,400 miles an hour, for nearly 200 seconds, until an anomaly prompted ground controllers to destroy that one. They now have one remaining. Oops. I have two words. Test flight. (laughs) <laughs> this is why we make them. Uh, again, it's it's a it's a good concept. If this works and you could design the vehicle to carry people, um, that is New York to Los Angeles in one hour. Just you know, ponder that for a minute. Um, uh, uh, amazing. It also the, the military implications alone are. Or would be stunning if you could get this to work the way it's supposed to work. So far, we haven't, as you had pointed out, Sawyer, that uh, we haven't had much success. But again, from each failure, you learn something new, and you learn something uh, about the vehicle, and and hopefully you try to make it better. I mean, I, I I'll go back to the 1960s when every every time we would go out to uh, 
you know, you go out to Cape Canaveral and and you watch these the, these missiles go off and they would explode or something like that, and you know you'd never or you you wouldn't have a stable flight or or something along those lines, and uh, you'd have to destroy the vehicle. But you learn something each time that happens, and you take from it. So then, when you know when you finally get it right, you've got something. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that eventually we'll figure something out and we'll keep this thing together and we'll make it work. And once we do, wow, you know, the, the doors are wide open. So it'll, it'll be a, a boon for aviation. It'll be just like breaking this, you know, just be like, like breaking the sound barrier finally. So it, it'll, let's just watch and, and hopefully, hopefully we'll get this right. Definitely, because NASA has tested the scramjet technology before, as it's called, which, just to give you an idea of basically what a scramjet is, is that it uses the oxygen from the atmosphere with a little bit of jet fuel rather than regular rocket engines, which use oxidizers and then the giant fuel tanks, for example, the shuttle. Right. Scramjet technology has been used to get some vehicles up pretty fast. For example, the X-43, which you might not have heard of, was a test vehicle... That went Mach 9.8 in November of 2004. It was only for a couple seconds. But the one big important thing about this X-51A test is that A, it's a test, so failures are expected. But B, everyone's always wondering, when are we going to get this technology? New York to London in an hour, that would be amazing. Well, to quote an article from CNET, they said, quote, We'll probably see one-hour cross-country flights about as soon as astronauts are commuting to and from Mars. So don't expect it anytime soon. Now in the story, I mentioned a little bit about the scramjet engines versus regular rocket engines such as the shuttle's engine, which brings us to a story about the shuttle. But it actually doesn't have to do with the engines. It's more of their nose. Now... For the last time, two shuttles were nose-to-nose ever as Space Shuttle Atlantis and Space Shuttle Endeavour switched places as Endeavour moves into the Vehicle Assembly Building for its final processing while Atlantis moves back into the Vehicle Assembly Building. Now we have some big moments coming up. The last time that the Space Shuttle Endeavour will be at the Kennedy Space Center It's towards the end of this month, in September 20th, it is expected that Endeavour will head on its way out towards the California Science Center for eventual display at the end of October. While Atlantis is scheduled for towards the beginning of November to begin its rollover to the visitor's complex at the Kennedy Space Center for an opening of their display in 2013. It's getting sad now. Yeah, I saw... There were some photographs that uh, a few uh, individuals were taking on the ground. This this was the final rollover. It was the final time uh, Endeavour was going to leave uh, the orbiter processing facility and make its way over to the vehicle assembly building, where Atlantis was going to go ahead and swap spots, where you know Atlantis was going to go back into the orbiter processing facility and, and await its turn. Um, yeah, it is kind of sad. It's the end of the program. I mean, Discovery is already a museum piece. It is sitting at uh, Udvar-Hazy. Uh, Enterprise, as you well know, Sawyer, <laughs> is sitting over at uh, the, the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum here in New York. 
and um, Endeavor is is getting ready for her final final flight out to uh, out to LAX to go over to the California Science Museum, where uh, her temporary display is going to be. Uh, I guess they're going to open up the end of October. So, um, and of course Atlantis, who just has a nice little short leisurely stroll down the road uh, to her final uh, display area at the uh, uh, Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center. But yeah, the program is 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 over, and uh, the vehicles are going their separate ways. And you know, I guess it is hitting home that this is truly, really at the end of an era and you're not (laughs) going to see these birds at all anymore. I'm still kind of sort of pinching myself that, um, you know, just a a little over a year ago, we saw Atlantis, uh, take off for the last time at, uh, at KSC. But, um, again, the, it's an end of an era. It's time to look forward. Hopefully we've got a, we've got some really exciting things waiting in the wings. Uh, there was a very neat article that I would kind of sort of urge people to take a look at on nasaspaceflight.com about Dream Chaser and it's um, how how the Sierra Nevada is taking from the shuttle's legacy and building on it with with Dream Chaser. So uh, again, it tells you a little bit more about what's going on currently with with uh, that particular project, but also it's tie into the shuttle program and and what. Sierra Nevada is picking up from what was learned during the shuttle era. So, in essence, you know, they are picking up the baton where these beautiful birds left off. Definitely. And just so everybody knows, update-wise, in terms of traveling, Endeavour will fly from the Kennedy Space Center on September 17th, arriving at Los Angeles International Airport, or LAX, on September 20th. And then after a day and a half procession through the city streets, it will reach the California Science Center October 13th for display on October 30th. And Atlantis is scheduled for rollover as of right now to the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex on November 8th with an official opening date scheduled for around June or July 2013. Just to interject something here real quick, uh, there was another orbiter exhibit that opened up at the Johnson Space Flight Center in uh, in Houston. It was a little-known uh, orbiter called Orbiter Vehicle 95, which was essentially a full-up test vehicle. Um, it, it, it didn't have the wings or anything like that, and but it, it was a full, you know, simulation of the of the shuttle um, cockpit also it could it had all the wiring sort of you know laid bare but i guess on against all the lattice work so if you needed to go ahead and find out what wire was going where you could do it but it was basically i think used during during the flights in case they have had to track down a problem or test something and uh, that exhibit just opened to the public, I think, last week. I think there was a really cool article on uh, collectspace.com so, um, uh, that uh, Bob Perlman wrote. So if anybody's interested, go ahead and take a look at that. And I believe that exhibit's open to, to, to the public. Uh, and it's, it's something you can go into. You could actually sit inside the cockpit, I believe. And, and um, uh, you know, if, if you're in the Houston area, go ahead and take a look. It's, it, it would be far worth it because uh, if i recall exactly i was talking with somebody over there a few years back 
that they were afraid that uh, this particular um, well, this particular relic from the shuttle program after the whole program was over was just going to vanish. It was just going to be dismantled. And uh, there was a huge, huge battle as to what to do with it. But um, I guess uh, Houston, since it did not get an orbiter, uh, is really, really trying to make um, some lemonade out of the lemons it was handed and uh, is trying to to bolster up what it has. So, uh, again, if, if anybody's in the Houston area and wants to take a look at that, you know, visit uh, Space Center Houston and, uh, and take a look. Don't forget, they also have the Space Shuttle, I believe it's Explorer? Yes, and I believe the game plan for Explorer, if I recall, is to try to go ahead and sort of paint it in such a manner that it looks like a flown orbiter. Uh, the neat thing about Explorer is that you can actually get into it. I, it was once at the Kennedy Space Center, at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center. You can you can get in, into this particular um, this particular craft and kind of crawl around and and uh, you know get an idea of, of what the mid deck was like and and you can go upstairs and, and I don't think you could sit into the cockpit uh, seats. At least that that I don't think was the case when I was in there. Uh, but you can go ahead and take a look outward from that flight deck and see inside the, um, the cargo bay and get a really good idea of how big that cargo bay really, really is. I mean, you could fit four elephants in that thing um, if, if that gives you an idea of, of how, how roomy that, car, that, uh, that cargo bay was. So, uh, again, if you want to go ahead and take a look and if you're in the Houston area, take a look at Explorer 2 while you're there. Definitely. Now, speaking of Houston, Houston was not necessarily the primary mission troll for a spacewalk that occurred today on board the International Space Station. That goes out to Russia. It was their spacewalk. On board the International Space Station, two of its members went out and performed a couple of spacewalks, those members being Gennady Padalka as well as Yuri Melenchenko. They both spent nearly six hours working outside the International Space Station. They are wearing the Orlon suits, which are the Russian ones, that began at about 11.37 a.m. Eastern Time, where they moved one of the space station's cranes, the Strela-2, from the Russian Piers docking port to the Zarya control module, both Russian pieces of the station. On top of that, Gennady Padalka also showed off his arm as he threw out a small satellite which is a Russian tracking experiment, and he had to be just right so that it, one, goes into an orbit where it will not actually hit the International Space Station, and two, where it will re-enter into the Earth three months from now, giving them a little bit more of an idea on re-entry and tracking space junk. And again, we've talked about that problem here uh, many times. And uh, again, if, if we can do more and more studies to find out how uh, you know, orbital debris operates and, and what the its orbital mechanics are, uh, the more we, we, we learn about it, the more we can go ahead and try to control the problem. There is a second EVA planned, uh, if I'm not mistaken, on August 30th, correct, Sawyer? That is correct. There is a spacewalk where a couple of the other crew members, U.S.'s Sunita Williams, or Suni Williams, and Japanese astronaut Akiko Hoshide will be outside on doing their spacewalk. Right, and this this uh, EVA will be from the U.S. segment, and uh, 
I believe uh, this is going to be a, a six and a half hour uh, EVA or extravehicular activity. And according to the NASA website here that I'm looking at it, uh, that this is going to be essentially a repair mission. Uh, it's to replace a faulty power relay unit on the station's uh, one of the station's trusses, uh, rig a set of power cables for the arrival uh, late next year of of a new Russian lab, and uh, install some thermal thermal covers on uh, one of the docking ports there. The the uh, first spacewalk, sorry, as you mentioned, was the 163rd. Uh, EVA in support of ISS operations, and the one I was just talking about will be the 164th, obviously. Um, and if I'm looking at this exactly here, Sawyer, wow, Gennady Padalka has conducted eight previous EVAs. That is just, you know, I mean, that is one... <laughs> One fortunate guy, you know, I mean, yeah, he's done a lot of work, but imagine having the honor of saying, yeah, I've done about 80 EVAs on the ISS. Just, yeah, this was his that. ninth. Yeah. This is spacewalk number nine for Bidalka and the fifth for Malenchiko. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, again, this, we, you know, space is not becoming a, a place to just, you know, kind of sort of sightsee. It's a place to, to work. And um, hopefully if things keep going the way they're going, uh and this commercial th this commercial effort really really takes takes off no pun intended um, <laughs> we'll have uh, Bigelow Aerospace coming up to uh, to go ahead and uh, uh, deploy some of their inflatable uh, space stations and who knows we may have regular commuters going back and forth from the uh, the Bigelow designed space stations as well as the ISS and we may have, you know, universities or, or companies or even governments going ahead and uh, leasing these Bigelow uh, inflatables uh, for their own experiments. So it's going to be going to be a very interesting era. Hopefully, uh, this will be the beginning of, of something uh, something big. So let's let's keep our our seatbelts fastened and. Uh, get our tray tables in the upright position and hopefully uh, be on our way to the ISS. Who knows? Yes, indeed. That will be what a day when that comes around. But in the meantime, we've got these amazingly skilled astronauts going outside to the vacuum of space and keeping the ISS functional and retrieving science experiments and keeping everything up A-OK -okay and functioning. Yeah, and we're learning a lot, too, Uh by doing this, we're learning a lot about uh, how to how to deal with a, a you know not only to deal with a mammoth facility like the ISS is. I mean, we're talking about a million ton facility orbiting up, orbiting uh, above us here, but we're also learning how to work in space and and how to repair things. And while you know, en route, and who knows, astronauts bound for Mars or other places in the solar system will have to do the same thing. Well, they'll have to get out and uh, perform an, an EVA to, to perform maintenance or perhaps even, oh, I don't know, allowing something like Robonaut 2 to do that and, and, and sort of directing it once Robonaut gets, uh, gets smart enough to do that. It'd be interesting to see if, if you can get something like, like a Robonaut 2 out there to do those kind of repairs. That'll be another interesting thing to learn in the future. Now, speaking of learning, we've learned two very interesting things recently here on this show. One, as we learned last week from one of our listener letters, that blueprints from the Saturn V possibly still exist out there. 
And number two, we've learned that this is an amazingly popular topic. (laughs) This is by far... Master of understatement, sir. As much as we joke around how we want to call this the Space Junk Podcast, I think we should rename this the Saturn V Blueprint Podcast. (laughs) Yeah, well, yes, indeed. We we, we do have another letter uh, from that, but this is sort of a, uh, a letter of sanity, too. So, uh, Sawyer, why don't you go ahead and and um, and read that, please, uh, to to everyone. Important note about this email: this was received hours after we recorded the last episode, which means that this was post recording and after the release of the previous episode. So we did not talk about this last week, even though we received it last week. Now, this is from listener Donald Kalinowski, and I really apologize if I mispronounced that. Hello, referencing the recent podcast with the talk of destroying all the Saturn program blueprints, I find it interesting that recent online article at Aviation and Space Technology about the possible use of a Saturn F1 engine for a heavy lifter, possibly a launcher for Mars missions. Grant and Whitney and Rocketdyne must at least have some. He's also put out an email to the National Air and Space Museum to find out if they have any copies in their archives. He ends this with a very important sentence, which I will echo. Enjoy the podcast, but leave the conspiracy to late night AM radio. Regards, Donald Kalinowski. Yeah, well, well going forward, we're going to let George Norrie and Art Bell deal with that kind of stuff. But um, there's a company called Dianetics that is looking to sort of rechristen the, uh, the F1 engines, if you will. And uh, this is for future versions of the SLS. So that, that's, that's, that's pretty much out there. It's documented. And the gentleman's absolutely correct. Uh, that is sort of in the works right now. But, um, yeah, again, the, the, my thoughts on the whole Saturn V, you know, trying to kill it conspiracy theory is is getting to be Colonel Mustard did it in the conservatory with a candlestick. Uh, I you know nobody's really come forward with any of this and all that and and as you pointed out Sawyer it's getting to be an interesting little topic here but uh, um, I believe the gentleman is going to follow up with with something Sawyer if, if I'm not mistaken if I if I heard that right. Well, he sent a letter to the National Air and Space Museum, and hopefully he will follow back up with us if he receives an email from them. But I should add that in talking about that article that he read, he linked to it and is an article and uh, something that might sound familiar to us, Aviation Week, with uh, someone who might sound familiar to us as well, Frank Morin Jr., talking about exploring the F-1 upgrade for a heavy lifter. And based on reading this article previously, it seems like they should name it the F-5 because it's like they're just hitting the refresh key yeah pretty much um <laughs> it, i mean the the engine is going to essentially be and, and again we, we go into to some real serious depth on this on a upcoming uh, space flight observer episode uh the engine is essentially going to be the f1 but it's basically going to be the two the 21st century of the f1 engine that version of it uh, it'll have new alloys lighter tougher that type of thing um so you're you're going to have uh essentially older technology but rechristened 
in a new in a new form, sort of like the new Beetle. I hate to draw. I'm, I'm loaded with car analogies tonight for some reason, but um, <laughs> you know that that's that's I guess the best way I could put it. Uh, you know, looking at the old Volkswagen Beetle, the way it it looked, and then we've got the new Beetle out out now. Um, it uh, and no boys and girls, I do not work for VW. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's it, it's sort of the same same deal where where you've got an older design in a new you know in a new wrapper if you will and that's what really we're going to be doing with 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 the f1 or that's what what a company called dianetics wants to do with the f1 uh and again this will be used in the larger version of the sls the 130 ton version and not the uh the space shuttle main engines like we're going to be using in the in the 70 ton version so um but again, I'm in a wait and see mode. We'll see what happens. I just want to see SLS actually fly, but um, we'll just wait and see. I mean, it, it, it's kind of it's we're trying to teach an old dog new tricks, and uh, we're, we're, we are usually pretty good at it. So we'll we'll just have to see how this evolves and and how uh, how the F1 may still play a play a role in uh, in today's uh, in today's rocketry. It's it would it, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Yes, indeed. And I'm going to reuse a joke that I had just said a couple of minutes ago in the podcast because it's still bad but still relevant. They really should just call it the F5 since it's like hitting the refresh key on a keyboard. <laughs> I'm just going to let that go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Once again, I I should add here before we wrap things up. A very special thank you once again to Donald for writing in to us. And if you would like to write in to us about any topic besides the Saturn V's engines and the blueprints on that, because I have a feeling we beat this old horse to death, but if you have any other topics that you'd like to talk about, because you could see one small email can start an entire really long chain of discussions here on this program, you can always send it to us by emailing us at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. You can also contact us on Twitter as at TalkingSpace. And you can also write on our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. On that note, I believe that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank you, Gene McCulka, for joining us tonight. I had a blast, Sawyer, and I hope everybody listening did too. Thanks a lot. We're going to repeat what we said last week and hope that it will be true and that Mark will hopefully rejoin us soon next week preferably as he finishes getting things settled after his long trip away making himself smarter so our skies can become safer with the federal aviation administration mark we miss you buddy get back here soon yes we want you back but we want you back at full capacity with some great stories for us and i know we'll all be looking forward to that and we're also looking forward to having you back again with us next episode and we hope you will join us but until then as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are (laughs) 